Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We are dead! We are all dead! We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane! Man is even capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now. We celebrated the equinox with some hermetic gnosis. Rampong returned to the virtual Alexandria. And he took us on a visual, archaeological, and astrotheological tour of ancient Egypt. We discovered the actual location and secrets of Thoth's Hall of Records. Expect pyramids of Egyptian lore, Edgar Cayce, Hermeticism, Atlantis, and some alien stuffy stuff. You know we also touch upon modern pop culture and social issues 
as they related to arcane mysticism. Full show for everyone, as this was a celebration of sorts, and there is still more content to come before September ends. Thank you to those of you who support this Red Pill Cafeteria. You are amazing and your backing, company, and feedback help grow this podcast. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. Expect more violence, wars, rising addiction and suicide rates, mass depression, and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of Yaldi Baldi and his Epstein angels. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or many of my guests and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatevs. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. Other than that, let us to our latest AB Live. In one of my recent Santo Daime astral flights in Portugal, I beheld the universe as one eternal machine. A voice kept telling me, it's all a machine, over and over again. Is this good or is this bad? Let's find out, and with this show, perhaps we can get closer to feeling the pulse of the machine. Upcoming clip from Love, Robots, and Death. Wake up. Martha Kifelson. You're dead, Burton. Stop it, okay? Not Burton. Yeah. I don't have time to figure out what unresolved psychological conflicts gave rise to whatever this shit is, okay? Gotta keep it together. The marble index of a mind forever, voyaging through strange eons of thought, alone. I was the world in which I walked, and what I saw or heard or felt came not but from myself. It's like a highway into her mind. It sounds like... like a machine. And now I see what I see. The very pulse of the machine. You're saying that this moon, Io, is a machine. And that machine is you. If you're a machine, what is your function? To know you. Maybe death. Maybe life. Join with me. Maybe I'm gonna live forever. Or maybe this is just one last dream. And we rejoice because we are live. A uh, bit of a different introduction. <clears throat> Excuse me. Never uh, never a bad time to have a little introduction to Gnosticism. Not the usual 
uh, nipples for men introduction, but I'm sure a lot of men's nipples are hard on this first day of fall. I know here in the Midwest, it's already like 20 degrees cooler, and I don't like that. But I hope you've enjoyed, for those of you live or on video, this little introduction, and welcome, everybody. Welcome, as always, to the Desert of the Real. Uh, we don't take prisoners. We liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, and you come here to the virtual Alexandria seeking that old-time gnosis. So, very special show tonight. We are celebrating the autumn equinox, and I can't think of anybody better to celebrate than my friend and the enigmatic and brilliant Graham Pong. Graham, how are you? And welcome. Thank you, Miguel. I'm doing pretty well. I want to sit there and say those cool uh, nights in the Midwest, they're going to bring down what I consider my favorite uh, season from up there, and that's that fall leaves. There's mm. nothing like looking at that, that those sea of fall leaves out there in a the forest. Yeah, I, I, I miss those. I don't. I, I'm all about the summer these days, but uh, what are you, you going to do? It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just so short, but oh well. And with us too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? And did you thought you knew everything? Oh, I, I don't know. I come I, over I, the pump. <laughs> well, I got the point, you know. <laughs> Pyramid, no. Pyramid pun. Pyramid pun. Yeah, I, I love the leaves too, and leaves too until they fall off the tree. <laughs> then you got to rake them up. But uh, uh, it was ninety here in California today in my section of California. So good lord, I, I think yeah, fall has not really started. Actually, we get warmer weather uh, in the fall here. A lot of cases. Is that normal? Ninety degrees? Um, kinda. You know, we get an Indian summer, you know, or Native American summer, whatever is politically correct today. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to say anything in this age, is it? Yeah, commander <laughs> summer. How about we go Hobbit with second summer? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar, as the other saying goes. So. Well, awesome. Well, yes, we will be discussing uh, the Hall of Thought. And as always, for those of you who are uh, running into the comment sections on YouTube and Facebook, if you have questions as we do this presentation, please write them in all caps, all question marks, or do a super chat, and we will certainly do the best, our best to get to thee. Uh, as for some uh, house cleaning, uh, as always, please support this show. Please support all independent podcasters. There was a scheduled show tomorrow at 1230 with Danielle Dusky on the season of The Witch. It was sort of a, another celebration of the fall equinox. But we will have to reschedule. Unfortunately, Danielle got the Rona. She's doing fine, but she did lose her voice. Like Eve in the Gnostic Gospel, the Archon stole her voice. So we will have to reschedule. Uh, other than that, uh, also for those of you who are part of, who are AB Prime members and you are leveraging the private RSS feed, 
uh, we will be changing the password on October 1st. So that's just a, a little alarm. So don't think when you're trying to stream full shows on AM Byte and it won't let you with your password, just go to the website and there will be a new password. Um, and uh, yes, for the season of The Witch, we've got some good shows coming in October. We got shows on the occult and national socialism. I'm sure a lot of people will be triggered. We got shows, philosophical shows on some Gnostic uh, exemplars like Emile Ciaran, David Lynch. We've got uh, shows on uh, time travel. We'll hopefully have a Halloween special of some sort. So uh, we got some great shows coming up. So don't go anywhere. The Gnosis has just begun. It's raining Gnosis. Hallelujah. So other than that, I think that's all the house cleaning I have for now, or housekeeping. I would say house cleaning. Um, well, Grandpong, tell us about uh, this discovery or what's in stall for us tonight. Go ahead and bring it up, Miguel. Bring it up right off the bat. All right, here I yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say that we can at least have the screen up for stop. It, you don't it, want it, no nice... no warm up jokes or anything like that. My arms. Oh, are not for the. In, I was going to say <laughs> not for the in, the intro screen. We can talk, we can tell the jokes over that one. All that's right, much pretty. Right. That's much prettier than we are, in my opinion. There <laughs> that is, yeah, that is true. We are we're we are long in the tooth, the three of us. <laughs> Great examples of the demiurge's uh, promise in the world: the flesh is weak and it rots. I, I stick by the saying, you know, I, I have to get old. I have to. Do I don't have to grow old. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, You're perfect. You know. Yeah, um, I was just in Portugal and. Uh, I think one of the things I admire is the the elderly in Portugal. It's different than here in the United States. They are active. My aunt just turned 91, and she still takes the bus, walks miles a day, cleans her own house. Several of my uncles are in their 80s, and they're driving and taking trips. I mean, old people, it's just a, it's almost a different mentality than here in the United States. No, no, I, I agree. I was going to sit there and say, if you want to see old people active in America, you need to go to happy hour. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> awesome. Well, tell us about uh, what we are looking now on the screen. Thoth Hall of Records. Yeah, I, I, I figured I'd uh, I'd pull out, you know, Bill and Ted's TARDIS and, and dust that <laughs> off and... Uh, you know, sort of go back to some old ideas of mine and, and, and kind of share with you some stuff that I think sort of cool. And it's like, you know, it's uh, I, I was reading a lot of this mythology and stuff early on. And um, we can uh, we, we, and uh, I, I, it's one of those where I learned about, you know, building the pyramids when I was, I think, second grade. And when I was in my, uh, you know, in my teens, I was sitting there and alternating between uh, reading. Uh, you know, Eric Von Daniken and to balance me off. I I, I read a Hal Lindsey book to balance it off. Mm. You know, I figured between, between the two of them, you know, I, I should end up with science and math straight down the middle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, but this is one I had where it's like, a, you know, I read about that one. And then, you know, as so we get to the slides, I read about, uh, you know, started reading Casey about and, you know, some of the new thought movement and all of that stuff in my, you know, in the early 70s and that sort of like flipped a lot of my ideas on the pyramids and you know like the, and, an idea uh, instantly you know 
a very sensible location as to where Bach would have put his Hall of Records. You know, it just, just came to me. And again, this is like probably about 10, you know, I was 10. And I've yet to see any evidence that indicates it can't be there. You know, so, you know, so just wanted to share it with you and, you know, share some of my thought process and such. Have awesome. a good time. Tonight. Let's have a good time. Awesome. Love this new stuff. This... Shall we go to slide two? Yep. Just next slide. Let me know how to. I'll say next slide. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I wanted to go a little bit into uh, my, my methodology, and I sort of start from a uh, you know, you know, Socrates is sort of your your base when you're starting with any sort of epistemology or anything, right. you know. And he did the whole you know a doubt rather than knowledge at the base uh, of epistemology because everybody else was running around talking about what the what the what they uh, what they knew. And he's like, well, I don't know this. And, you know, as I said there, I sort of paraphrase there from uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, he's, he was the one philosopher to bring them all in and in ignorance bind them. <laughs> you know, and, you know, there's a part of me that's always been a little suspicious that Socrates saying that he knew nothing was sort of a humble brag. Because if you know nothing by, you know, the, the converse, you know everything. And it, <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. You know, and, and my last note is, you know, he wasn't part of the academy, but he kind of gets a pass since, um, you know, Plato didn't start the academy yet. And that's yeah. a that's a real picture of him, right? Twenty five hundred years ago. Of course. Of course. Or as yeah, he, yeah. Of course. Or as he's known as San Dimas, Socrates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next slide. Next slide it is. This is uh, this is one of my intellectual heroes. This is uh, Charles Sanders Peirce. And his quote is, you know, we cannot be begin without complete doubt. And Aristotle formalized logic with deductive and inductive reasoning, you know, 2,000 years ago. What Peirce did was he sort of split the middle and combined the two and came up with abductive reasoning. It's like, you know, a lot of people say, you know, there's there are things with like mathematical proof. You have absolute certainty. And then you have, you know, your sensible stuff, like the sun coming up every day. But that's not certain. Right. And Peirce, he, he very much formalized a way where you could basically probabilistic logic. You know, it's sort of like, as I sit there and say, me and LeBron James playing one-on-one, -on -one, yeah, people can say they don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but let me bet. Let give me fifty-fifty odds on LeBron, and I will bet all day long. <laughs> 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 you know, and uh, you know, Purse for my money is one of the most brilliant people ever. His writing is almost impenetrable to me until I already learn what he's talking about elsewhere. And then it's like, oh, that was what you were saying all along. He is just, <laughs> he, and but one of the things is nobody knows about him because he got blackballed by the academy. He got on the bad side of basically the president of Yale, and <laughs> the mm. only person, the, the the person who really supported him was William James, the psychologist. Oh wow, you know, and he basically that, and 
supported him and you know fundraisers with his friends in boston and you know he never could he ended up you know basically penniless when he died hmm. so and it's you know but again he, they even haven't even published all of his work yet he's just He's something else. And like I said, it's one of those, I go with the abductive reasoning because a lot of it is you're coming from more of that middle, I don't know place. And, you know, you got you got your rails of absolutely true, absolutely false on the side. And that plays, is a different, you know, I, I recognize that that's a different methodology that I use that I picked up from more of my STEM approach, you know, the, the math and the science stuff than a lot of more of the, uh, social science and you know literary approaches have so uh next slide this is the next philosopher in my in my chain this is uh hw jones jr he sort of took the socrates and purses and took it to the field and yeah his father like was doing you know world tours as as a scholar and he and he was advised by a uh, young when they met them in europe in order to you know check in with purse because purse was working with semiotics and logic and could help him on his quest and you know jones jr he kind of took the philosophy and you know took it into action much like you know aristotle did with uh, alexander unfortunately mm. neither alexander nor Jones Jr. wrote a lot of papers or books. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it goes with it goes with the territory, and he had a very very heterodox relationship with the academy. Well, never Next. heard of these figures, but yeah, that's when he wasn't stunt doubling for Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those listening in audio, is a very young and handsome uh, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, and exactly, exactly. Yeah. For the record, I'm going to skip the next Indiana Jones movie. I, I have to see it. I, it's, no, you do. Huh? Okay. Uh, I've seen all the others. It's one of those. I, I've seen too many too many worse movies. <laughs> I saw no, Batman there's... and Robin. <laughs> oh, my God. So did I. <laughs> there's no way it's going to be worse than Batman and Robin. No way. No, that is a good point. That is a good point. All right. Next, <laughs> Next... slide, and hopefully it's not Batman and Robin, and it's not. Thank God. No, no, no. This is, this is how I learned, you know, how you know the, the evolution from Mustafa to the Pyramid. And it's like the first burials in Egypt, they started as basically just, just covered pits. You dig the pit, put the stuff in, cover it up. And then they got more and more elaborate. You got, you know, better pits, better covers. You know, and eventually you got, you know, such deluxe pits and deluxe covers, and you had so much, you know, surplus, and you could hire a bunch of people to build them for you. That's when they started throwing in passages. So, and eventually, you know, the next step was to stack them on top of each other, and then you end up with a pyramid. But you're saying that they brought the bodies down, right? Through a tunnel and then up into the, into the structure? Well, I'm not, I'm saying this is how I was taught back uh -huh. in the 70s. Okay. And that was, that, that was, that was the explanation that it was there. You, you, they had to have the extra right. tunnels in order to get the bodies in because they couldn't just build on top of the bodies anymore. Mm -hmm. Because they, you know, they were spending a lot more time building it. You yeah. know, and a lot more resources were going in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that one, and basically it's like the Giza complex and the Great Pyramid was, was the zenith of the whole pyramids uh, building. 
Any okay. questions at all yet, guys? Or no, Vince, you good? Okay. Yep. All right. Okay, so far. Okay, let's go next. And then along comes Casey. Then I, like I said, then I read it, you know, after I read that one a few years later, then I read Casey. He was the sleeping prophet. And, you know, he channeled thousands of readings for free. I assume, yeah, you know, probably most of your listeners have at least some idea who he is. Mm-hmm. But he presented me an entirely different Egyptian chronology and different take on the whole thing. And he was the one who introduced, you know, the whole Hall of Records concept. And that this was, you know, to preserve the Atlantean knowledge, you know, from for protect it until the end of time, basically. Next slide. Now, people have been looking for chambers in, in, in the pyramids since, you know, Khalif al-Mamun, he battered his hole in there and then people started dealing in. You know, they found different niches, you know, the, the shafts out of the chambers and all that. And the most recent one, they did some muon detectors. They put them in the queen's chamber in order to, uh, and they found uh, a void. You know, the I'm sure you know about the the big void that they found above the uh, above the grand gallery. And they also found a real small one, not too far from the entrance. Mm-hmm. Next slide. You know, what would Thoth do? <laughs> so I figured that you know. If I was my old big big buddy Thoth, he, yeah, he he wrote one emerald tablet. The other thirteen were channeled. You know, where would I place my hall of records? Right. It's like okay, because the pyramids are getting built built much earlier in time. It's like okay, I'm relocating the original Ben Ben stone. It's going to the Temple of Ra in Heliopolis. Now I have a pit. Now I'm going to make that pit into my hall. And just, you know, basically trip that up. And then I'm going to build the whole pyramid around the structure that, you know, basically go old school with the, you build, you know, you dig your pit and then you build the cover over top of it. You're just building a whole pyramid on top of it afterwards. And again, this has nothing really to do with the whole burial or tomb concept. Since, you know, this is just sealing basically a chamber. Next slide. Here is what occurred to me. It's going to be right about equidistance between the Queen's Chamber and the Subterranean Chamber. That then gives you basically almost an equidistance stack of four. It's like there's that huge void right at ground level. I'm saying that the pit was dug there. That's where the Hall of Records is. And you basically have almost solid granite for, what is it? 40, 50 feet, no passages, because it was all built on top of it. And that was the, the best way to protect it. And yeah, that's the best way I could come up with. And I figure, you know, heck, I'm a 10, 12-year-old kid. If I can come up with that, Thoth had to come up with at least that good or better, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's better than put it under the paw of the Sphinx where everybody traipses in and out. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And for those who might be curious, what exactly is a Hall of Records for listeners? That is, Casey introduced the idea that there were three Hall of Records that were uh, basically established as Atlantis was falling in order to preserve the Atlantean records, Atlantean knowledge, 
and you know some of the artifacts. So there was the one in Egypt, one in Mesoamerica, and then one in uh, in the Himalayas. Mm. And uh, th- and this was the and this was the Hall of Records that was established there, and that they were all going to basically be opened at, the, at they were supposed to be stored and opened until the uh, you know at the basically end of time, whatever that means. And uh, however, the apparently by the Casey readings, the one in uh, Mesoamerica had been located and looted. Probably oh, really? Spanish, probably Spanish invaders. Yeah. Again, this is Casey channeling stuff. <laughs> I can't be right, responsible. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So words. Yeah, so so that's where I figure the, the the location is, and there's no way the muon scan would have detected it because they set up in the queen's chamber above where. I would think the hall where, where my, you know, where, where the location, I believe it is. If they had set it up in the subterranean chamber, you would have had data that would have showed something at least one way or the other, but nothing to show, you know, the, the, there's no solid evidence to show that it's not there. And it just seems a very sensible, logical place. Mm-hmm. Next, ne- next, uh, next slide. Oh, hold on. Wrong one. Here you go. Now, with those four chambers there, you now have some new possibilities for interpretation of the pyramid. It could be with, you know, four is the number on the top of the jet. The pyramid now could be functioning something, you know, a la, you know, sitting on top, but like, like a jet pillar. It also, if you look at the, at the next one, some sort of fractionating column for refining. If you look at the, uh, you know, the grand gallery and a lot of the other ones, it doesn't look that dissimilar to some sort of, you know, refining, fraction, fractionating situation. And the last possibility that it opens up, given that you have, you know, what is it, you know, th- meet dozens of feet of granite, it could be something along the lines of, you know, Kr- Krishna's heart, sort of an arc reactor sort of thing. That was also part of powering the pyramid back in the day, but it's sealed in there, sort of, you know, radiation protection and everything else. Again, all of these are huge speculations on top of an already speculative uh, location. <laughs> but just, you know, it's interesting that it's, it's, it's the possibilities. Very cool. Uh, next slide. And that's my ending. The Wild Stallions Gospel, both 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 chapters be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. Ah, uh, that's where you got it. That's where you got it. I, I knew he looked familiar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that was a short and concise uh, presentation. I'm sure we can talk about a lot about much more. My question for the audience that might want to know: What was uh, Casey's vision of the fall of Atlantis? What was his take on it that differs from Plato and others? I'm not that familiar on Casey in order to to, to be that authoritative on it. What I've read as far as, you know, with the pyramid goes, it seems like it was more calculated and intentional than an accident in Casey's one. It's like a sort of a pre-planned collapse disaster. Yeah, that was sort of the take I did in order to, and that's why you had the halls of records and everything in order to rebuild afterwards. Mm -hmm. 
And he had it right over the Sahara. Is that where he had Atlantis or where he, he said, claimed it was? No, Casey was the one with the uh, Bahamas and the Mediterranean. The Bahamas, okay. Yeah, yeah. He had it where there was uh, basically the Sargasso Sea area. That, that subsided and sunk right about then. That's where Casey had his Atlantis at. And I'm of the... The take is there were many Atlantises at yeah <laughs> many Atlantises that many of them sunk at different points in time. It, it, it's a cyclical kind of thing, you know. It was, yeah, it was an empire. Yeah, it was an empire. And for the audience, uh, Grandpa talks about it in our last interview on uh, Homo Divinus and Atlantis. So. Where you sort of reconstruct this timeline and Atlantis is in it. And yeah, as uh, Terrence McKenna says, Rome falls nine times uh, an hour. I'm sure Atlantis is falling nine times an hour too. But has Rome fallen? And well, there you go. Philip <laughs> would, would argue with that because the empire never ended. So. <laughs> I was going to say, never argue with Phil. <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely not. Uh, if not, those three-eyed Christians will come and get you. Um, Vance, what do you think? Do you have a question or a question from the audience? Um, we had one question. Uh, Mark Jefferson wanted to know if uh, Thoth had any um, corresponding identity in the, in the Nordic, you know, among, in the North. Which which God um, would, would he correspond to? That's that's one of those sticky questions because once you get up into the Norse areas, there's not an interpreto that works really really well. It's like it's easy to go from um, Naboo to Thoth to Hermes, Mercury those. You're, you, th those are very consistent, but it's like it's almost like in the Norse, Thoth gets split between Odin and kind of Loki. Yeah, exactly. Because I've always had tr trouble with the you know the interpret you know the, the interpretation of um, you know Hermes as Odin. It always seemed like Loki was a much better fit for him, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about you guys think there. Yeah, but a lot of the symbolism and other things does lean, <clears throat> again, more towards Odin. So, yeah, I, I would certainly agree that it's split. Probably gets more complicated when you get into just the, the continental, the mainland or Germanic, because I think Loki is specific to Scandinavia. He doesn't really appear in Germanic lore and all that with, you know, so... Oh, I, I didn't know he, he he didn't make it much much into the mainland. You know, I I assume past Denmark. He may, must have had something in Denmark because that's basically Scandinavian. Right, right, right. No, no, it's it's one of those. It's more of the portfolios of the gods. It's like the portfolios kind of get split differently up north, and my guess is a lot of that is the colder weather and such. It it they have different priorities, so that they end up. You know, splitting hairs slightly differently. I never no, thought no, that their society was very intellectual anyway. I mean, Thoth was a very, you know, huge, huge knowledge, you know, and and so forth, a kind of a source of knowledge. Whereas I, I don't 
I, I never thought any of the Nordic gods really, they were more like fighting, you know, and swords and Asgard and all this other stuff. That's always my impression. Maybe that's kind of ignorant, but that was my impression. No, no, no. You, you got 90% of them. The, really, there's only a couple of them that weren't. And it's sort of like, you know, Odin was one with the, you know, I'm going to hang on the tree for seven days in order to figure out the runes. You know, Loki was always the schemer. He was always, <laughs> yeah, he was definitely not the, he was the one, again, you know, from the Marvel stuff. He was always the, uh, you know, writing checks he didn't have enough in his account to cover. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, a lot of times he was able to, get, you know, get it into the bank before the check hit. And if he didn't, he, well, that, that, that's where you get, you know, slept near from. Yeah, yeah scheming it, as opposed to, you know, investigating the knowledge of the universe. Well, I was going to say it's scheming, but if you look at all of the stuff that the Norse gods have, outside, other than the stuff with Odin, they pretty much it all came from Loki. Thor's hammer was, you know, mm -hmm. was that one? The, the walls the of Asgard. The walls of Asgard was, was he got them for free because he bet the one giant, and that's where Sleipnir came from. Is mm -hmm. he basically tricked the, uh, the the giant's horse so the giant couldn't finish it on time? And you know the meat of poetry was. You know, I was gonna say, well, it's like it's one of those where Thor's kind of adult, but you know. <laughs> Well, it's again the the uh, trickster archetype. They're the ones who bring the knowledge and the gifts to humanity. <clears throat> I know uh, Thoth really isn't much of a trickster, but then of course, is once he transformed into Mercury or Hermes, you've got that trickster idea. But yeah, the trickster is the one who brings fire to both the gods and the humans. I was going to say, you know, if you're looking at, you know, back in the uh you know, Sumerian, Babylonian, you got Nabu being the son of an Enki, you know, kind of runs in the family. Mm. Yeah, and for the audience, uh, bringing up movies again, don't waste your time watching Thor Love and T Thunder. It was just shit. The only good thing about that movie was the screaming goats, and uh, the rest of the movie was just <laughs> dreadful. Have you guys watched it? No, I haven't yet. Ugh. So you're saying Painful. the goats didn't the goats didn't scream mm. long enough for you? <laughs> oh, you wanted them to scream longer. <laughs> yeah, that was the best. They were the best part of the movie. Drown out the horrible plot and writing, and wasted opportunities with comic book uh, narrations that just got butchered and destroyed. It was a disaster. Did they disrespect Thor? No, no Loki at all. Yeah, they disrespect ah. Thor. No Loki. It was just. Um, that one, it had a feeling of a little bit too woke for my taste of being able to be, be that good of a movie. Yeah, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, again, no. when the writing, when the worst, no, the worst thing was the writing and the plot line. And it, that was least of your worries. The least of the pain would be the wokeness. Trust so they, me. was it the trying to fit too many comic books, plots, and stories into one movie? Yeah, and making trying to make them all comedies, uh, not having enough time for some serious, uh, for some uh, pathos, if you would, uh, just um, sort of yeah, like that. Too much, too, much too much slapstick, especially with serious. If you the comic book, 
uh, narrations uh, that they have uh, were pretty serious stuff. And this one, they try to make it into some sort of a slapstick, tongue-in-cheek stuff. It was just disastrous. Well, it's they they were able to make it work with Guardians, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, and they're trying. They've been trying to fit Thor into Guardians, and I think that might be kind of how what they're trying to do here. But again, they could have done it a hell a heck of a lot better. Sounds like a thousand times better. And yeah, and I mean, I know uh, spoilers is. Uh the guardians only appear like the first 10% of the film. And then it's just Thor being a big doofus throughout the rest of the film. (laughs) Tessa Thompson has one expression throughout the whole film. And (laughs) Oh my God. It's just uh, painful, painful. So they're going back to the old comic book routine of guests starring the guardians of the galaxy for three pages. (laughs) Batman and Robin meet. No, is it Scooby-Doo meets Batman and Robin? Scooby-Doo meets Kiss. Remember those days? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. They actually did a series not too long ago where they brought back a lot of that, where they had, because they bought the, uh, DC bought the rights to Scooby-Doo and Warner Brothers. So uh, they were teaming him up with the superheroes again in the comics. It was, uh, they, as long as it, it's all fun. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, here's a question as I'm looking. Emmanuel Wolf wants to know, is it true there is a craft under the Sphinx? Like an alien craft, right? Is that what he means? Yeah, no, no. This one, yeah, it would not surprise me if there was the remains of a crash under there that they built over top of. Kind of similar to, you know, the rumors that you have in Antarctica and such. Oh, that's a big one. You know, I, I could see that have happened that, you know, you had crashes there a long time ago and there's a ship there and that's part of their underground complex and such. Who's they? The Nazis? Those- I'm going back to the Nazis no matter what tonight. <laughs> that's all there is to it. Ah. <laughs> uh- Oh, no, I, I was going to say it's before the Nazis. It's, like you said, it's one of those homo de Venice and such is, is, is my go-to. <laughs> They're an easy answer. You know, again, I sit there. It's, it's one of the things that what once I had the, you know, the sort of the, the, the principle when I'm reading through stuff and I'm reading the, you know, like how Thoth became associated with as a baboon. And that's because baboons were considered a wise animal. Mm-hmm. Baboons were used by the priests in the temples because the baboons were more responsible than the humans. Really? Yeah. Think about that for a second. The humans aren't as responsible as the baboons. Who are the priests? They're clearly more responsible than the baboons. Yeah. So they're not human. You know, <laughs> yeah, oh. chain of logic. yeah, it's that's <laughs> one of those where, yeah, you know, if the humans aren't even capable of just working in the temple, odds are the people running the temple are several steps higher. Again, just going off of just the, the, the stories and logic. I'd pay yeah, to see that. that. I'd pay to see a bunch of baboons, you know, straightening up the temple, you know, 
moving the jars back and forth, lining them up, things like that. <laughs> That'd be good. I was going to say you had that little monkey in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that got poisoned by the date. Mm -hmm. He was pretty competent. Yeah, that is true. Going back to Raiders of the Lost Ark again. And the Nazis. They were important in number one and number three. Hey, we had another question, by the way, uh, about Thoth. Um, and Mercenary wants to know what we think of Blake Lemoyne uh, wanting to train the AI Lambda to become Thoth. Huh. In other words, that's, yeah, the first, that's the first I've heard of that. Now, hmm. I'll tell you what I think of I, it. It's like, how could you train an AI to be something more than what you are? <laughs> I mean, you could read a bunch of books into it or whatever, but how could it actually be thought? You know, you know what I mean? Well, the concept there is 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 the AI emergent or not? And if it's emergent, it can exceed. You know, it's an it's a, it's initial programming and it's initial programming. And I don't know if you could get an AI to do something like it. it's. It's like computers are different than people, and it's like people are drawing off of cells. And I don't know how computers could have feelings, or you know, it's like it's tough to sit there and try to understand for me just how it works. It's like, and I know AIs are are. Amazing. It's like I was at the first um, Gecko conference in 99. That's a genetic and evolutionary computing. Yeah, I think I'm agree with you and uh, Phil too, Philip K. Dick, that AI is never going to happen. Machines will never be conscious. Uh, just not going to happen. Although the argument would be if you wanted to take an idealist position that if Consciousness is basically a, an energy and we are sort of the antennas, like animals are the antennas and we draw different pieces of consciousness. And why couldn't a machine trap that wave of consciousness that, consciousness that permeates the universe? So um, I don't know. I don't think it can. Uh, what do you think? But some people are saying, well, look at quantum computer. Quantum computer is going to produce uh, consciousness. Do you guys have thoughts on this? Because I know nothing about quantum computing. I say it's going to be a combination of the two. It's when your your neural nets and your AI get crossed with your quantum computing. Because the quantum computing is going to bring in that uncertainty that you need for free will and volition. And that's what you need for uh, actual consciousness. The neural nets will give it the framework in which to uh, act out its uh, free will and consciousness. Kind of like our, our, our physical bodies allow us to uh, exert our free will and consciousness. It's just going to be a little different. That's my thought. Hmm. Yeah, my thought is uh, quantum quantum computing is different than digital computing because it can be indeterminate. It can come up with, you know, it can kind of run parallel things at once. So it would probably be good to speed up perception. But what an AI needs is, first of all, it needs to build a model of the universe and a model of itself. It needs a connection to the universe of some sort. 
And, you know, human beings have connections to the universe, you know, consisting of the senses. But uh, many of us believe that we have more than just, the, you know, uh, sensory connections to the universe, that there's a spiritual connection. And I think that's where it starts to fall, you know, fall apart. Any mechanical contrivance we, we would have to be able to tune in, so to speak, to whatever information source goes beyond you know, um, light, matter, and so forth, whatever spirit's made of. Yeah, Graham, what? Go ahead. No, no I, I was just said, I agree I agree with you, Vance, and that's exactly where um, the quantum would come in. Is It is pulling from that uh, beyond, you know, that, that, that beyond, you know, light and time-space sort of realm. That's why, you know, the, the, science, the physicists have had such problems dealing with it. Yeah, non-locality, right? You know, the, uh, the the in the quantum world, you know, location really doesn't mean much. I mean, it's kind of probabilistic, uh, you know, as far as what's where. It's yeah, probably and th here. And that ties back to my presentation with uh, with uh, Charles Peirce, where he that's what he was dealing with is that level of just it starts with uncertainty. And, you know, that certainty is like islands within seas of uncertainty. Certain yes, certain no's are like seas within probabilistic. You know, and that's very close to like how the quantum goes. And that's why, you know, like I said, I'm a big fan of Peirce. I use a lot of his ideas. He starts from a different base, I do. But, you know, he... Or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. I don't understand enough, I guess. <laughs> I throw up my hands. Yeah, at some point. Oh, there's some people you just can't. It's it's like it's like Jung, man. How many pages are left to be unpublished that be, to be read? You know. <laughs> at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And that's true. not even counting all the, what is it, 10,000 that have been published? And also, most people don't know he's got that series of interviews. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but you guys have seen on YouTube where he's like, you know, I don't believe in God. I know God. I know. And, you know, there's these cool, like, uh, cool clips of Jung that you can find on YouTube talking about consciousness and all that. But that's a series of these sort of unplugged interviews he did. And there's hours of it. and Still hasn't made it to the public. So even with Jung, there's still a lot of stuff that's out there. So. Very cool. I haven't seen all of them. I've only seen a couple of the interviews. It's mm -hmm. like uh, when I saw the Red Book, the first time I flipped through it, and it's like, man, he was a frustrated comic book writer artist. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> he would have been very happy in the seventies with Moore and all these. Uh, and, and I was thinking, I was thinking Mobius. The first time I flipped through his Mandela's, I was thinking of Mobius's horny goof. If you've ever seen that, with the way it melts page to page, and it's like, right, right. damn, man, you you were you're like seventy years ahead of him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yeah, for the audience on a, on a little uh, 
we want to do a, like a future show on comic books and pop culture, but just to whet their appetite, if you had to provide a list of uh, top five hermetic and or Gnostic comic books, Graham, what would be your list? And you've given me some suggestions that have just been awesome. Yeah, no, no. The last one that I suggested to you is right there. It just it's one of the the masterpieces of the industry, and that's Planetary by uh, Warren Ellis and uh, John Cassidy. It that was, was awesome. They managed to keep the same creative team together for. Uh, it took him, I think it was six or seven years to get the whole series out. You know, normally you throw in, you know, fill-in writers or, our, you know, fill-in fill in creators. But that they allowed the, the people to tell their story, and it ended up working. And that, that one's up there. So much by more. I mean, obviously, V for Vendetta. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to say which one by more isn't necessarily Gnostic. Um uh, for me, uh, ironically, his most most obvious hermetic or Egyptian mystery one, Promethea, I think, is some of his weakest writing. It's like he was no, trying no. to force it. I don't know. It's good, but it's nothing as moving as other. There's a lot that Moore was doing that was similar to what... Um, Ellis was doing in Planetary, where they were changing the different art styles from issue to issue. Right. It's for me, I love J.H. Williams III's art just so much. You know, I really don't care who's writing it. The fact that it was Alan Moore, just, you know, there was a bonus, even if it wasn't his best. And for me, I loved his Armageddon at the mm -hmm. end of the series. It just, it worked so well with the way he did that one with, you know, interplaying with Tom Strong and this whole, you know, ABC universe. And we should, we should do an episode just on more <laughs> because he's, there's so much about more that people just, they don't know, don't understand. Let's do it. A show on more. Yeah. And I guess for, uh, for comic books, I would say we've talked, yeah, Grant Morrison, obviously The Invisibles is uh, the great, uh, great Gnostic treatise, and uh, what's in it? Multiversity is pretty good. Yeah, no, Invisibles is solid, that one. That one, a lot of that got cribbed for The Matrix, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's obvious. <laughs> oh, no, it was one of the, that. That's why Grant was so pissed about that. That's why he left DC at that point in time. He was just he, they took it. It's like they they had the Invisibles comics on the set and yeah, yeah. <laughs> or handing them out. Yeah. yeah, the Wachowskis came from the comic industry previously. You know, that's where they started the writing, and it's just now nah, he was he was not happy about that. Um. Powers is surprisingly Gnostic in the Powers? comic series. Yeah. It was and it was a TV series briefly, but that's another Warren Ellis one where it's it, it it's you know a police uh police officer in a in a city of superheroes. And uh I'm trying to think what else. I'm trying to think some of the, uh, the uh, off the beaten path kind of things. Um I was going to say Gaiman. Gaiman, it's been a while since Gaiman wrote too much. 
I mean, Sandman Overture, he's overdue on uh, Miracle Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know in the Sandman, Gaiman does mention the Canaanites, Canaanites, the, and he calls them a Gnostic sect that, you know, gave the, that followed Cain and uh, did all these, they were libertine and all that. That shows up in uh, Seasons of the Mist, and it's actually Satan who's talking about this Gnostic sect. And uh, in the, he says that they sent less people to hell than other religions, which he thought was funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, for a uh, gay man, I think he, his Gnostic opus would probably have to be Coraline is my favorite children's story. No, no, Cor- Coraline, that, that, that's nice. I was going to say, I don't know if you ever read his, uh, his grail short story. No, that one I, I always enjoyed. No, no, that, 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 that's worth a read. No, he has, it, again, it, what I like with game and it's, uh, He's, for my money, he is just a master of the craft. You know, it's, I don't know if you ever read the Miracle Man series at all. Mm-hmm. But Very uh, good, yeah. that highlights the difference between Moore and Gaiman. Because in like Moore's last issue, he had, you know, he had like one throwaway balloon, one sentence. And Gaiman would take that one sentence and turn that into an entire issue. And then he, he put all those issues into a series. And it's, it's like, yeah, he's just, he can take anything and turn it into a well-crafted story. You know, Morris, a combination of it's like Morrison early on, he was just running on just raw, you know, just, just raw fumes. Don't know what he's doing. You know, he's breaking rules, but it works because he doesn't know what he's doing. It's like that. You, you can see how he, he matured on Animal Man. I assume mm-hmm. you've read that one through. Oh, yeah. And and that I was going to say that that one has a he started with one book and he ended with a different one. And it was he, he and it all was much better for that. Um, trying to see what else I'm thinking of. I would say surprisingly, Runaways would have a certain amount of that that dualistic back and forth leveling, you know, because you have, you know, the parents are the are the villains, so the kids become, you know, the heroes. I don't know. What are some of your favorite ones, Miguel? I think you just mentioned all of them. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as a Gnostic theme, those would be the one. Or just in general, oh, there's a whole bunch of them. Hmm. I mean, have you, you have, it. I was going to say in the superheroes, there's a lot of stuff that got embedded back in the Marvels. It's like, you know, the thing has a certain about a Gnostic thing with, you know, the, the, the stuck in there. You know, it's. Eh. Yeah. And then, of course, you have like, there's a villain called Abraxas and what in Marvel. There's, yeah. It gets thrown in there. It's like Dungeons and Dragons. You know, Gary Gagax was just throwing everything in the kitchen sink and creating all this <laughs> syncretic, this wonderful syncretic stew of stuff. I was going to say, there's probably more esoteric stuff in Dungeons and Dragons than almost anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it always cracks me up because Gary Gagax was a Jehovah's Witness. So I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, he was. So was Prince. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Prince was too. 
and one of the great underrated guitar players of all history. The man could play guitar better than almost anybody. Oh, that's, I sat there and said when he died, it's like he was the greatest overall package we will ever see. Agreed. Between writing, singing, performing, the instruments, the you know, the engineering on the records, you know, the thumbing your nose at the at the record industry, the whole thing. <laughs> oh yeah, genius in every every way. So, but here we are. Well, Vince, any questions on Egypt or Thoth or anything else? I know yeah, we kind of uh, got gone on a tangent, but you know, it's the. <laughs> the first day it's a fall equinox first day of uh, spring so we wanted to uh, break some rules did the egyptians okay. have comic books take a long time to write them though <laughs> well but, no uh, we're still we're still reading them they're on the walls right right they're yeah yeah no i was gonna say that's from like scott mcleod's you know understanding comics he, he goes as comics are basically it's sequential art that tells the story yeah. That's so much what the ancient Egyptians had. You know, they had the first comic books. There you go. Good, good answer. Good answer. Um, but um, Oswald Spengler, um, a, a frequent visitor to Aeon Byte Live, wanted to know if uh, you could comment, Graham, on uh, both the Eye and the Aeon of Horus and, and Thoth's Emerald Tablet in relation to what we're talking about tonight. What do you think about the Emerald Tablet? What about the Eye of Horus? What about the Aeon of Horus? That sounds like a Crowley uh, kind of thing. I'm not sure about what the Aeon of Horus is. That's the first I've heard of that one. No, that's I Crowley, have... remember? He was bringing about oh, the Aeon of Horus oh. during his little okay. sex magic thing in, yeah. in Egypt. No, no, yeah, no, it's Crowley. <sighs> <laughs> Probably such an he's such ah. an interesting character. Well, he's like with Zachary Stitchin. There's so much that's you know to be admired about about a lot of their approaches, and then it's like they're going down the road, and all of a sudden they put their car in the lake, and it's like <laughs> you didn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah. So well, no, no, with 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 the eye of Horus. You know, I haven't looked at any drawings, but again, just picturing off the top of my head, I could imagine that one of those, because the Eye of Horus often is overlaid with the brain and, you know, things like that, where it, it corresponds with the, with the pineal gland. I could easily picture just picturing it in my head where some sort of diagram that puts where I see the Hall of Records within the pyramid would be roughly where the Eye of Horus might be. Again, depending on how you do your geometry, but that, that's one of the problems that I have with it is there's so many different ways you can set it up, and it's almost like you're ending with uh, pareidolia, where it's like you're as soon as you find some numbers that kind of start to line up, then you start going with it, and it's like I, I like it better when the numbers happen to line up after the fact, and they, they're more verification and you know for me. But there's some people doing some really, really good stuff on the Great Pyramid these days. Oh, yeah. Like what? Oh, I don't know. I'm off the top of my head. I saw one recently where they were breaking everything down into Fibonacci numbers. 
and they were basically saying, and it's it's the idea that they that the uh, the pyramid was built using a slightly different mathematics, using a slightly different numbers. And with the math I know, what they were saying made a lot of sense. You know, it's they definitely sounded like they were onto something. And and the, as they kept saying, it's like they had their theory, and they kept looking more and more, and it kept lining up more and more. And that's always a good sign. Has anybody come up with a good, you know, timeline? You know, you know, you've seen those uh, prediction, predictive timelines where you map on the the time, you know, starting from the entrance of the pyramid and it goes up the corridor, and you know, this this place corresponds to 1900, and this corresponds to World War One. And have you, have you, is that all over, or is somebody still trying to do that? You know. Oh, I'm sure there are a bunch of people trying to do that. That's. That's you know again where, where they some of them reconciling with Book of Daniel and you know that situation. It's I don't know again. It's one of those. It's I'm dubious. You know, anytime that that it's so easy to read stuff in, and that's a one of those one things that we know for certain about you know doomsday prophecies. Yes. Everyone has been wrong so far. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that that's why when you're starting your basis off, I'm assuming that there's a doomsday. And you know, again, I'm not saying that I don't know, but you're kind of starting from what looks like a flawed assumption from my standpoint. And you're, it's easy to, to lead yourself into error. Yeah, but they, it moves books and it makes money. I mean, uh, right now there should the ocean should be covering most of the country. Uh, Y two K, the Mayan one. I mean, they do they do move books. Yeah, Vince, we need to come with our own Gnostic Doomsday scenario. Make some mm -hmm. money off of it. Yeah, hmm. I have to think so about that gonna, one. Yeah, I was going to say I, I always. I always had a, a short story that I wrote back in back in grade school on that one. That was back in the days of the Omen and stuff. And I sat there <laughs> and I sat there and said that the second coming of Jesus was basically that all of the relics that are in the altars and everywhere were just all of a sudden going to like congeal together and like become, you know, the super holy. <laughs> Yeah, trust me. The, uh, the, the 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 nun didn't like that too much. <laughs> the story, <laughs> <laughs> but it was basically it was like a zombie Jesus made Franken zombie Frankenstein Jesus of all the you know relics from all the churches in the world and such. That's pretty creative. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I got one. We'll, we'll have an AI that now somebody gets an, a super smart AI that tries to uh, train it to be the Demiurge. And then it actually becomes the Demiurge. See, you know, and he does it under the pyramid. He's got a secret lab under the pyramid. <laughs> Tie that in there. You're getting too close to the stuff I've heard already, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah too, too close to the truth, Vance. We'll have to eliminate you. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, Klaus Schwab is after me now. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite ones is, you know, it's the Yahweh is a um, is an is 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 the AI computer that, that that's capable of, of basically projecting backwards in time. And pretty much that's the whole thing is, you know, he's trying to bring about his being. And that's that's what all the, you know, 
telling Moses what to do and all the prophets is all, you know, le- you know, to you know, kick him here, nudge him there in order to bring himself into existence. And again, that, that idea has been around for decades. It's like uh, that movie Memento, but for Yahweh, that kind of it. <laughs> well, no, let me I, ask I, you um, this, uh, Graham, two questions. Um, why do you think humans have such a fascination with ancient Egypt more than any other ancient empire? There was there were other empires. There was a lot of fascinating monuments, but Egypt really captures the attention of uh, Western man. My um, gut reaction is it's the hats. The Egyptians had better hats than anyone else. <laughs> and you got to yeah. respect a hat, a good hat, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 but, but getting serious. The friggin' those... cap is kind of gay. You're right. All these other hats kind of suck. You're right. I won't say that it looks like a used condom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I no, think no, it's are aliens. <laughs> Alien or Nazis? We're going back to Nazis. They're actually not. Ah, ah, you got to have your pick. The Nazis didn't have you. They didn't have those extended heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and again, again, that could be a reason for for for, you know for for the good hats in Egypt. They wanted to look like the uh, the the big head people. No, no. The reason I think is I think it was one of the earliest civilizations it's i keep i'm not sure what the whole relationship between egypt sumer and india is i'm willing to sit there and say india probably actually does some predating or you know egypt and sumer and they got started sort of after the mahabharata war if i said that even close to right (laughs) You know, a- after that one, and and that's when that's when uh, Egypt, Sumer, and all that one was 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 the next uh, you know restart after that. You know, and then again, that's, go ahead. They left so much behind. That's uh, one of the things that I think tracks people. I mean, the pyramids. You know, what's what's around that's anything like the pyramids, the temples. You know, they're just the you know the, the mystery. Of it and the pretty oh, pictures on the walls. Well, that that's what I always loved about ancient love about ancient aliens is they always go to those awesome places. And yeah, I'll sit there and say, I can't say that a lot of the stuff in Peru is that far behind the stuff in Egypt. With you know, oh. you know that the stuff Machu Picchu and Pumapunku yeah. and uh, Sachimul, you know, all of that stuff down there. It's, and that's part of what we're talking about, about the global civilization. If you look at the polygonal, you know, masonry that's at the base of a lot of the walls and a lot of the places. Did they leave and, behind a lot of writing? You know, the people down in Machu Picchu, Peru, and, you know, the South American, you know, Mesoamerican, because that's the difference that I always noted, that the Egyptians left a lot of, lot of symbolic writing behind. But better comic other books. Things, yeah. The other, the other civilizations didn't really tell us as much about themselves. Well, 
you have to remember how much got destroyed of the Mayans and the Aztecs intentionally destroyed to, to make sure nobody knew about their history. And the when Incas, they, uh, yeah. the, the Incas are a slightly different story because the Incas, their way of communicating wasn't with written words. They had their kipas, which were basically like knotted strings, where it's mm. like different, different, um, different threads, different knots. You know, there was a very, it was a very complex code that they used to communicate, and that's, you know, that's what they used instead. Now, the the biggest thing with the writing is one of the things that I pieced together with the Homo Divinis stuff is the writing ties. I, I don't know if we talked about this this last time, Miguel, but the writing, the, the onset of writing ties in with the elongated skulls going away. Oh, really? Yeah. No, no, we if didn't you look talk at, about that. Yeah, no, no. And the reason I realized for that one is they didn't need writing because they could remember from their previous lives. Mm. If they learned it in one life, they knew it in the next one. No. So there was no need to write anything down. And now you're talking about, you know, what happened with, you know, the whole drinking from, you know, drinking from the, you know, the river of Leth and, you know, where people don't remember their past lives now. Right. You know, How and about that telepathy? was. Maybe they were telepathic. Then you wouldn't need writing either. Oh, there, there was probably something like that again. You, I don't know how true it was. You had like Madame Blavatsky and, you know, telepathically communicating with the masters in Tibet. I don't know. I don't know. I, all that channel theosophy stuff is, it's interesting, but it's interesting. Grains of salt. Yeah. And briefly before we, before, uh, we go. Could you give a, a little summary of Homo Divinus, as you've mentioned it a few times? And there might be some people in the chat and the audience who, uh, how dare they might have missed our last interview? Oh, I thought everybody has, sees all your shows, Miguel. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See how wrong I am about stuff? <laughs> yeah, you're finally wrong about something, man. No, no. Homo Divinus is, I started writing about that in 2019, and that's where I had worked through from a very naturalistic basis, and I basically came to the conclusion from, from facts and logic that those, the, the gods and all of that one, there was a previously, there was a previous intelligent hominid species that developed in Southeast Asia slash um, Australia before the uh, sea level rose. Because we know that Homo erectus had gotten down there over a million years ago. We know they were seafaring. We know they got to the islands and became Florensis and, mm -hmm. and all of those. But what happened is we have basically no records after about a million years ago with, you know, with Peking man. And the bones of that one are very, very, the story behind those bones are very interesting. You know, cloak and dagger, people getting bribes, meet at the top of the Empire State Building sort of stuff. It's interesting to look into. But uh, no, it's it's the idea of we know what happened to the Homo erectus that stayed 
in Africa. They became Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened to the ones that were in basically the same sort of, you know, jungle, climate, everything else in Southeast Asia down there. No idea. And all of the, the myths and stories talk about, you know, them coming from the east, you know, coming from the water. And if you have, you know, a seafaring based, you know, based nation there. And the idea is those were the uh, that that was a, a became intelligent before Homo sapiens. And they basically became a spacefaring hominid over 500,000 years ago. So it's sort of like the ancient astronaut theory I get behind, not aliens. They were hominids that left Earth and they happen to wear spacesuits just like people do these days. Just, mm -hmm. you know, a long time ago. Think that, that about, you know, I was going to say any, any other questions you have in order to give people a base on time? I was going to say the other one is I found the, the, the impact crater in Antarctica, but, you know, that, that set me on the way. Oh, wow. Well, I, I wanted to mention in our last interview for the audience, uh, check it out. Uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was March came out. Uh, I'll, I'll put it on the show notes for those listening on audio. Uh, but it's fascinating because in our interview, you talked about how the Georgia Guidestones might have been a signal to some of the Homo Divinus that's out there on space exploring. And they came back and they were like, okay, this is how we run this world when we have to run this world and you know what happened between our last interviews bram something happened to the georgia guidestones what are your feelings oh, on this yes. <laughs> <laughs> somebody bombed the shit out of them <laughs> oh that, that i i first heard that on your show yeah i was watching your show when you when you broke it not too long after i was like what the hell? Was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fr another frac yeah, faction of Homo Divinus, or who did it? There's something really fishy about it on so many different levels. It's like there was, you know, you plow it over hours later. There's no real investigation into, you know, IED, the timing of when stuff went off. It just, I mean, I had been there. March 2021. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, no, it was, it was, it's interesting. It's not a place of ancient power. Just that didn't have the, 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 the ancient power feel, but it was definitely picking up some, some new power feel from, from again, as people invest, you know, investing in it and interesting in it. And, you know, it's, I don't so know why people would March blow it up. 2021, and you left a time bomb there in March. I'm just joking. I I hope not. I was going to say yeah, exactly. I hope us talking about it didn't get it blown up. It's like I yeah. know that was that I wrote a snippet on it, and that was the one that got me the biggest amount of hassles from people. Really? Why? <sighs> Part of it is one, I kick myself because I tried to make a rule of cutting off at just past the just past World War II. Because sort of in the, the Secrecy Act, you don't want to be talking about stuff people alive were necessarily involved in. <laughs> right. You know, and it's 
it's like people on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle are obsessed with it, both on, on the Freemason yeah. side and on the anti-Freemason side. And it's like, you know, it's, it's like critical theory, regardless of what position you take, the, the somebody shooting at you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, yeah. that's, again, I used, I used to be able to get along okay discussing politics with people because I just sort of feel them out and find out, oh, you hate Trump? Here, here's my list. It's even longer than your list of reasons to hate Trump. Now, if somebody else came up and said Biden, I'd have a longer list than they had for Biden, too. Mm-hmm. I hate both of them equally. <laughs> As I sat there and said, I could, I, I stood in line for an hour to fill, to fill in a ballot with neither of them filled in for president because I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be choosing. You know, which septuagenarian billionaire was going to get to, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, unfairly reward, you know, his family and friends over the next four years. Mm-hmm. That's what it seemed like to me, and if that's what it was, that's what it I was. don't need to. I don't need to weigh in on that one. They can just, everybody else can decide who gets, who gets to do that without me. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of the voting thing. I am done. I am done. And what's, and yeah, people were very, are still very invested in the Georgia Guidestones on both sides. It's amazing how this really struck a chord might be by design. And what's fascinating too, is uh, this October 1st, it's going to be five years since the Vegas shooter for that uh, Harvest Festival. And like you said, with the Guidestones, we know nothing. We still know absolutely nothing. Uh, it was obviously some sort of ritual, but uh, that's as far as I can tell it is. You mean to blow it up with a ritual? or No, no, the Vegas, shooting, the Vegas shooting. <sighs> Remember yeah. that? One? Yeah, I agree with you. It was a ritual. I'm also suspicious it was a botched assassination. That there was somebody there that I'm pretty sure I'm not going to mention that got tipped off and ended up not being there. So what happened, happened. I was going to say on the Georgia Guidestones, that's one of those. I was actually able to track down who built them. Really? Yeah, and that's one of those things I don't tell people because, yeah, I got to have some respect for the people. But it was pretty much, it was a Rosicrucian. Oh, really? Yeah. And again, I don't have a problem against any of the people. Just just don't go around hurting people. That's my role. <laughs> yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like growing up. It's, you know, as I sit there and say, you know, I, I joke. I, I grew up. A, I grew up a young boy in a primarily Jewish community, <laughs> and you know, I probably learned more Hebrew with flashcards with my, than some of my classmates when I was training for the the, the bar mitzvahs. You know, but it's one of those we you know sit there and used to say. It's like it was actually kind of a you know subject of pride. It's like you know sit there and say, you know, you know, do you know Jewish people? control Hollywood? Well, yeah. Sit there and add up the shares of stock. The people who own the most shares of stock control it. You know, who's on the board of directors, you know? And as they sat there and said, sitting there and saying, the Jews do it. That's not anti-Semitic. Was, you know, if you sit there and say, you know, the, the person's in charge doing something, if they're an asshole. Now, 
you should be against them because they're an asshole, not because they're Jewish. Not all Jews are, you know, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? That's what they all agreed is, you know, you, you object to the person because of what they're doing, not because of who they are. Exactly. You know, and again, I find it, you know, I'm not sure if that, that, that I think that's attitudes changed over the years. I think there's too much outrage culture these days. Agreed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's kind of completely out of control. Well, I think they're going you to know. make a new version of the Georgia Guidestones. They're just going to have one big tablet that said, you will own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> big stone. Eat bugs, live in a pod. Right. Yeah, right. I was going to say, I, I always liked my zeroth commandment. Do as God says, not as God does. <laughs> uh, Yaldabaoth will be proud of you. The <laughs> uh, Demiurge speaketh. And he is uh, proud. No, nah, no. Nah, yeah. I, Lord only knows. I was going to say too much critical theory, too much hate. You know. Yeah, not enough dialogue. I mean, that's why on this show I have no problem having people who are antagonistic towards Gnosticism or Hermeticism or the occult. It's uh, it's great to have a conversation and exchange ideas and see what their perspective is and learn new things. Uh, I have no problem at all. No, so, com and, co conversation is 100% the key there. That's I hate debates because debates, it's like, I'm holding up a target and I'm trying to move it around so you can't hit it. And I'm trying to shoot your target that you're holding up. And it's like at the end of it, the only thing I learned as far as truth goes is, um, you know, what hole somebody shot in the other person's target. I can't be sure of whatever's left standing is true mm -hmm. because, again, it's the whole I don't know if it's true. You're just trying to say it's better than what the other guy is. And now, now again, we're back to the, the you know, tr Trump, you know, Biden, you know, Biden, Trump. <laughs> well, they're just reflections of what this country's, uh, what's happened to this country. They are. Trump was the American dream come true. The extroverted, bombastic, materialist, show business kind of uh, egregore, if you would. He certainly was the trickster spirit moving uh, through him. And Biden is sort of this uh, golem, half asleep, disoriented kind of, uh, again, egregore, which is what the American public has become after just can't see through the fog of anything we were just talking about no dialogue nobody's listening everybody's just sort of uh you know uh, regressing into some sort of childhood aspect uh senile like old people turn more into children so uh yeah biden trump uh trump biden are a reflection they are our egregores they are our shadows they are our projections so we want something better than we as a people have to look inward and we have to walk the walk and express better thoughts and have better dialogue. So I don't want to get on a tangent, but here we are. No, no, I, I agree. And it's I the Nazi's say, fault. <laughs> uh, the thought that occurred to me is whatever, ha you know, you, you got Trump and Biden, whatever happened to, uh, you know, Redford and Newman, because, Again, those were actually decent human beings, despite being in Hollywood. You know, Redford was married to his wife the whole time. You know, Newman, you know, with uh, 
you know, same thing. And all the money that they gave away, the Sundance Festival, you know, that's not what I'm seeing in the current crop. <laughs> no. But I wonder, did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kiss survive at the end of the movie? I still think about it at night in bed. Well, and the actual story, I mean, in the movie, it freezes. Right, it freezes, yeah. No, but in the actual story, yeah, no, they, they get slaughtered. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I know now, after all of it, 40 years, uh, next you'll tell me Tony Soprano died at the end of the show. Next you'll tell me this, huh? No, oh, no, I, I can sit there and tell you he had a stroke and, you know, he doesn't remember anything now. <laughs> Became the president of the United States now. <laughs> Just sort of out of it. One so thing like for man with Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Biden must be an Alan Moore fan because he was auditioning for the dictator in Viva Vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear Lord. The dark Brandon, I only right? I, I, I only I only wish Biden was that smart. It's like I, I honestly I go back and forth. Is Biden more seen out coming in than Reagan was going out? Yeah, I think yeah, good point. That's a good thing to consider. Both are certainly out of it. And Biden was never he was always just a weasel. He was never popular. Uh he was not he lost every time he was uh, running for president. He was always uh, part of the neocon, neoliberal establishment, uh, big for big pharma and the military industrial complex. So he was just basically shoehorned. I mean, even the people don't have a choice anymore. That's how bad it is. Well, Biden had reached the point is it was his turn. They didn't, <laughs> they couldn't. It was either going to be him or Hillary, and they just couldn't stomach running Hillary again. You know, it's just, yeah, I was going to say on Biden. Bernie like, Sanders I, was the, probably the most, he should have been the nominee. Bernie, Bernie, his ideas, I'm not sure they're scalable much above about a 10,000 person city. I don't think they're going to work <laughs> on a nationwide level. I like Bernie a lot, but I was going to say, getting back to Biden, I you remember why Biden had to drop out of the 92 presidential race. It's because he had plagiarized the convention speech. Right. And what he had plagiarized is he had plagiarized Neil Kinnock's childhood and was passing it off as Joe Biden's childhood. <laughs> and it's like, you were forgiven. Somebody plagiarism forgave. is one thing, but yeah, that, that's sort of a, that's a, do you have like the, nothing that's real in Joe Biden? And the answer is, well, we see. <laughs> well, he's mystical. All is one, right? All is one. <laughs> and matter. I agree with uh, Joseph Farrell who says that, yeah, his senility is not because of some old age. I mean, they are. we are in an age where that can get treated. It's because of all the evil he's done throughout its life has just shattered his brain. So, <laughs> It's just, again, he's part of a bloodthirsty group of people that have been in Congress too long. And like you said, they wait their turns and the establishment will put them in there. Whether, I mean, Mitt Romney was a, an example. And uh, who was the guy who ran against Clinton? Uh, what's his name? Dole. Bob Dole. Bob, Bob Dole. Dole. Yeah, I mean, just because it was his turn, but he was a his terrible, tr terrible politician. Just, again, this whole group of neocons, neoliberals, it's just ridiculous. Well, that that's the funny thing with Dole is Dole, 
he had a real shot of winning it and probably would have if it wasn't for Newt Gingrich. Really? Newt, Newt stabbed Bob Dole in the back in between the Republican convention and the Democratic convention by cutting a political deal with Clinton that went directly against Dole. And it was basically taking the wins out of Dole's whole campaign after the convention was over and giving this huge big deal to Clinton to use going into the Democratic convention. Hmm. No, I don't remember that, but... No, this one of the stupid, silly things like that stick out. That, and I can't totally hate Bob Dole because, eh, he kind of likes Britney Spears. <laughs> if you remember those ads, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but he had a sense of humor about himself. You know, it's... And that's that's one of the things with those people is the ones actually running for me aren't really so much the problem. It's the one setting one setting the agenda. You know, yeah, because yeah, for the, just puppets for globalists at the end of the day. Shadow well, government. Yes. Well, for the most part these days, they try to find people that are blank shakes, you know, blank slates. Right. Where they have no voting record. They have, you know, nothing that's not, you know crowd tested and you know that they're saying all the right words and people are going to read into them whatever they want and it's it's, it's like a, my this one my father explained politics to me as a child and part of it is i can't get it out of my head and he he was a lifelong independent and made me one it's the right recipe for america got torn in half pretty much at world war ii one part you know democrats took half republicans took the other half they both run on their half of what rights for America. Mm-hmm. As soon as one of them wins, what do they enact? The other half, which is what we said about, you know, Biden and Trump, enrich ourselves, enrich our families, enrich our campaign contributors. And so they're sitting there and they're feeding at the trough and the other party's out of power. So they rightly point and say, hey, they're not doing what's right for America. They're just enriching themselves. Here's our, you know, they tout their half and say, you know, got to switch for this. And your typical American says, yeah, they're feeding off the trough. Yeah, that's what needs to be happening. And it's not. I'm going to vote for the other side this time. And then, you know, they vote for the other side. And when they get into power, American public shocked. That second half of the agenda, where it's the enriching everybody goes in. And then the other side starts saying, hey, look what they're doing. Here's our good half that's not getting, you know. And you keep getting it's basically this this good cop, bad cop. And if you notice, I'm not listing which side's which. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's just they keep going back. And each time they get a chunk out of the American public and they keep losing. And when my father yeah. explained that to me and I looked around, I said, yeah, that's true. And then, you know, my uncle was a politician. I met the people he was around and it's like, yeah, my father's right. That's exactly how these people are. They basically, they don't have a soul. You know, it's like that. There's only one thing a politic that's unforgivable in a politician: not staying sold. Mm. Once you've sold yourself, you need to stay sold. If you sell your vote on a, on something, got to you know you can't switch. 
Yeah, your your dad was a wise man, and hopefully more will wake up to this reality because, well, here we are. We're going to go the way of Atlantis and the way of uh, ancient Egypt, and we won't even be remembered like the Egyptians. So, <laughs> Except for our comic books. so And the Nazis in the Iron Skies were still hiding there. But, uh, but anyway, oh, what? <laughs> the Nazis are still in Antarctica. You know that. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. So awesome. Well, I think we better wrap it up. Uh, good questions from the audience, as always. You guys rock. Uh, good comments. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed the show. Another great AB Live. To repeat, uh, tomorrow is AB Live with Danielle Dulski on the season of The Witch will be postponed because she is suffering from the Rona. She's getting better, but she's lost her voice. So we'll hopefully uh, schedule it for next week uh, to commemorate, uh, yes, the this uh, season of The Witch and, and the fall. And, uh, yeah, this show, the audio version will be out, and uh, hopefully tomorrow, latest by Saturday, YouTube version will be out, and it'll also be out on Rockfin, Odyssey, and a few other places. So I hope you've enjoyed, and, uh, yeah, please support this show. Again, for those who subscribe to the private RSS feed for Aeon Byte, we will be changing the password on October 1st, so look out for it. So think that's all I got. So first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company tonight. Okay. Um, it was very interesting. Uh, sometimes maybe we'll dig under that pyramid and find out what's in there. Um, and we're excited. It was a good talk to you again, Grandpa. My regards. And always yeah, good to yeah. hang with you guys. Yeah, likewise. And Graham, thanks for coming on. Another great show. And yeah, we should plan for a uh, a comic book uh, movie extravaganza for our next chat. Absolutely, absolutely. Always a pleasure, Vance. It's great to see you guys. And um, again, you know, be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. <laughs> party on garth and for the rest of you yes uh thanks for being here thanks for being yourself your true self here in the desert of the real and as always write your own gospel and live your own myth take care and enjoy the rest of the fall and i mean that by the season and humanity <laughs> take care everyone Good night. at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.